Here's all that. Uh, today we're starting uh, a Bible study series for the next few weeks that I'm calling Fierce Mercy. Fierce and mercy, not concepts that we often picture together. Uh, not two terms or ideas that usually flow simultaneously. My first thought that came to mind for me when I thought of fierce mercy, I thought of one of my wife's grandmothers, who's no longer with us. Her, we called her Granny B because her last name began with a B. I thought of one of the very first times I went and met Granny B. We went over to her uh, little apartment, and as we walked in, she was just so sweet and so kind, and, and she actually suffered from dementia. And if you've been through that, I know some of you have, and probably lots of us have had interactions in that world in one way or another. Um, there are things there that absolutely rip your heart out, and there are also moments that you have to enjoy the brevity of and have some laughs together because it kind of helps, right? And so Granny B, as, as I was walking in, was kind of starting to have some of those moments, I think. And as I walked in, she was so sweet, so kind. She took my hand and she loved me, encouraged me. Okay, Jason, okay. And then before I even made it to sit down, we're still in the doorway. She said, can I get you some bold custard? And, and as a, a guy in my young 20s, I just have never had a whole lot of experience with bold custard, okay? And I'm not... I'm not trying to age identify or shame any age group based on bold custard or no bold custard. I'm just saying I didn't know much about bold custard. It made me nervous. I was already nervous because I was meeting family for the first few times. Right? That's, that's a hard thing for me. And I was like, oh, no, I'm, I'm good. I really appreciate it, but no. And I went to sit down, and I sat there for a second, and she said, well, it's so good of y'all to come. And she sat down next to us on the, the chair right across from the couches, and she made a comment or two about the weather, I believe. And then she said, now, 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 Mr. Jason, can I get you some bold custard? It's like, no, ma'am, I'm really good. I appreciate it. I, I, I'm, I'm fine, right? And this continued on and on for what was probably an hour, an hour and a half visit. I would just guess. I, I didn't count. I wish I would have. But if I'm just guessing to ballpark it, I would bet that she offered me in an hour and a half bold custard probably at least 45 times, okay? Um, she was wanting me to know that she loved me through the instrument of custard that was boiled, Okay? This is what this was about. And I think about it because she was so kind and so loving, so compassionate to want to gift something to me, to want to feed me, to want to show me that she cared. So there's that tenderness. But man, she was after it, right? I mean, she was on the hunt for me to take that custard. She was absolutely fierce in pursuing me to enjoy the bold custard. Uh, the bold. It, was, it felt bold for me to say no after a while. The boiled custard, right? She is simultaneously fierce, but the thing that she was offering through her ferocity was an, an offer of kindness and love. What we're going to see in the next few weeks, I hope and I pray, it's my prayer, is that we will see God's heart in a way that maybe we've never considered it before, simultaneously flowing in 100% force of both fierceness and mercy. That we'll see that we serve and love a God who is absolutely merciful to us, but he is fierce in the way that he will not give up in us experiencing that mercy. He will not give up on his purposes in and through our lives. We're going to see that in the book of Jonah. Now, at the time of the book of Jonah, God's people has now divided into two kingdoms. And so there's Judah and there's Israel. And Israel is under the leadership of a not-so-great king named Jeroboam. And they have a really powerful, not-so-great enemy, the empire of Assyria. And it's in this climate and context that God 
works in the life of Jonah. As we're going to see, let's read Jonah chapter 1. We'll start in verse 1. It says this, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying... We're just going to stop there. <laughs> you think we're going to stop there, one verse? Let's read it again, because some of us, we were like, I didn't even get my brain in engaged reading mode yet. We're already done. All right, let's try it again. Verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying... Dot, dot, dot. We're going to jump into what he was saying, but the thing that I want you to see first and foremost is that Jonah is not in a place of asking God to use him. Jonah is not in a place of crying out to God and wanting his life to have purpose. This story of Jonah is referenced in the New Testament a couple different times, but but as far as Old Testament actually telling the story of Jonah's life, there's only one other reference to Jonah, and it is extremely brief and doesn't tell us much. He is not propped up by Scripture to be a super noteworthy major prophet. He's not propped up by Scripture to be a guy that everyone should revere and emulate. He's not seen as one who's crying out for the people of God or even the enemies of God to see the grace of God. He's not seen as much of anything. <laughs> He's just a guy. He's just living life. And we're told that in that indescript, maybe possibly mundane life, now, then, in that life, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. If you don't catch anything else today, I hope you catch the initiating grace of our God. That God is a God who doesn't wait on us to wave our hand hard enough to request his attention. He doesn't wait on us to strap on our, our bootstraps tight enough and live a moral enough life that he will show us a little bit of tenderness. This is not our God. God's initiation should inspire us to trust his love and respond in worship. Right? What does that mean? It means if I trust and see that God, and it's not just in the story of Jonah, it's in stories over and over again in Scripture. One of my favorite is Jesus teaching at a time. And he's teaching in this atmosphere. And there are people around, they're sitting and listening. There's a woman there who's been injured and she's hurt and she's bent over from pain. And the, the, the Scripture doesn't tell us that she looked at Jesus. It doesn't tell us that she asked anything of Jesus. It just says he saw her and he went to her. Right? Over and over again, we see God. We see his character embodied penultimately in the person of Jesus initiating with people. And if it's your story that you're a follower of Jesus, I would argue with you that you might have had some religious upbringing and people might have been teaching you this, that, or the other. But the story of your life and the story of your hope and salvation in Jesus is this, is that you weren't from right desire crying out to him, please help. You weren't saying, please show me. You were just doing your life and he intervened and stepped in. To show himself to you. And when we see that God has been the one who has initiated, that should lead us to want to respond to him with lives of worship. Remember, when I was starting the 10th grade, my family had moved to a new community to get away from what we felt like was not a great environment anymore where we had been living the whole time that I've been growing up and with all the same people, all the same places. We moved, went to... A new school, it was a hard setting, it was a smaller school, it was a different type culture from where I'd been before. And, 
And, and though outwardly people probably wouldn't have perceived it, inwardly I was just a wreck inside. It was a really hard time. Everybody had known each other since K-5, knee-high to a grasshopper, and here I come, bebopping in, in the midst, don't know anybody. And, and somehow I wind up in this new area at an area church. Now, if I'm being honest with you, I probably wound up there more than anything just to hang out with a couple of friends of mine who were there and probably to try to get to know some of the girls who were there. I'm not saying that it was good. I'm saying that God uses even the wrong intentions sometimes, okay? But I showed up at this church, and there's live video VHS footage of this. It's probably blurry and old, but I'll never forget seeing a video years later of one of our youth group meetings, and our our youth pastor's up there playing the guitar, leading us in songs to God. And as he's trying to point our attention towards Jesus, you see me and my buddy Caleb over in the corner, and we're trying to work out dance moves that go just right with the worship songs, right? We're doing it, and then I'm like, no, 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 no. And then we do it, and then we're doing it together, right? We look like absolute fools, right? The guys up there trying to pour in our hearts to Jesus, and we're going, no, 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 we're too busy for that right now. We're trying to be in sync, okay? We're, and not in sync like in the same time. In sync that we were trying to be Justin Timberlake and that crew, all right? J.C. Chazé, okay, whatever his name is, all right? That's as far as I can go. I don't know the other ones. I'm sorry, right? He's trying to point us to Jesus, and we're so not getting it, not paying attention. I remember going on a, on a youth trip with this church, And I was just still at a really weak point in my faith and not as interested in Jesus as I had used to been in my life. And I was hurting and trying to push away from God because I felt like he had hurt me, I'm sure. And I remember I'm on this youth trip and we're in this room shooting darts from a blow dart gun in a hotel room, which makes tons of sense. Especially when on the list of things we're to do and not do, it says you shall not buy any weapons, right? It's like, well, you shouldn't take me to Pigeon Forge and tell me not to buy a weapon, okay? It's like weapons, they should call it Weaponsville up there, okay, all right? But, but so we get these blow dart guns, and we're blowing, I'll never forget, we had just blown, and a dart had just stuck in the wall right when my youth pastor opened the door and walked in, and the door covered up where the dart was. He didn't see it. And the whole time he's talking to us, and we're acting super mature and being like, oh, yeah, man, that was cool. Yeah, yes, sir. Yeah, cool God stuff, uh-huh. And he left, and we were all like, whoo. And then he just happened to come back. He just felt it in his gut. I'll never forget. And he like starts to look around. He's like, I got it, right? Found the dart, stuck right in the wall. This, this is the kind of guy I was in relationship to this youth pastor, but I'll never forget this youth pastor, Joey Hill. He's a pastor now in Warrior, Alabama, but I'll never forget the attention that he showed me. It was different from the attention that I was getting from a lot of other adults at that moment in my life. A lot of the adult attention I got in that moment in my life was correcting everything I was not doing exactly right. And it probably should have been. But, but here was Joey, and he would speak the truth to me, and he would tell me where things needed to be different. But, but he wasn't looking first to do that. He wasn't looking only to do that. He was looking to build a relationship with a guy. We ended up, over a period of the next few months, becoming great friends. Him discipling me and pouring into my life. At one point, we even went to a, a camp that was supposed to be uh, a summer camp that a, that a youth pastor booked, and he had booked it for a winter camp, and there was no heat, and he and I ended up sleeping in the back of his SUV, freezing our tails off, right? We had this close relationship. I would call him at, at 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning and say, hey, man, I don't understand what the deal is with John the Baptist. I need you to help me because I'm like, this guy's awesome, but I don't get it. And I remember him saying, man... I'm so glad you want to know about that. Let's talk tomorrow. <laughs> you call me, you call your pastor in the middle of the night, you'll get better than that, okay? Uh, just kidding. You might get me sleeping through the call if we're not careful. I'm going to do my best. I'm going to try hard, okay? 
But, but this guy, he just took interest in me. He poured into me and he invested in me. And my life has been forever different because of Joey pursuing me when I really thought he was a little bit of a dork and didn't want to have a whole lot to do with the God that he was proclaiming. He came after me. He pursued me. He was constantly around me, encouraging me, joking with me, buddying up with me. He showed me love when I was doing everything I could to show him that I was unlovable. And his initiation in my life spurred about a desire to be like him and to love others in that same way. Spurred about, I believe, probably part of what God used to shift my heart to desire a life of vocational ministry. Spurred my heart to be a true worshiper of God and really love him and let him have my heart and not just my religious actions. All because he took interest in me. And I'm here to say to you today that your God has not pursued you because you were the model student of morality. That your God didn't pursue you because of which family you were born in. That your God is not pursuing you because of how well you can talk about him or how often you do that. He's not pursuing you for any reason other than he has set his affections upon you and deemed you worthy of his affections. And when he gives his affections, he gives them all out. See, here's the deal. When, when we think in some even small, minute measure in our souls that we've done something to secure the affection of God, that we somehow reached up and took it, that we worked hard to get it, then we'll also have this drumbeat under the surface in our soul that thinks that we can do something bad enough to lose it. (laughs) But if we trust that it wasn't because of our holiness, but because of our sinfulness, that he looked at us and had mercy on us, that he saw us and went, I want to love that one, and he set his affections on us just because he wanted to, all of a sudden I'm free from trying to live good enough to keep the love that I never earned to begin with. God's initiating grace should lead us to lives of worship. Worship, quite simply, is just a response that expresses value. Worship says, I have seen this thing and I decide to respond to it in a way that says it matters, that says it's valuable. Listen, it should lead us when we see how God pursued us when we were not those worthy of pursuit. It should lead us to live lives of response. And worship. Now, it doesn't always. And it doesn't always for our guy, Jonah. We'll see that in a minute. But first, let's see what God says to him when he comes with this initiating action in Jonah's life. When he brings purpose to Jonah that Jonah wasn't even looking for. Here it is, verse 2. God says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now you got to understand that Nineveh at this point, a little bit like Jonah, they hadn't been crying out to God. They hadn't been seeking for what the holy way to live life was. They hadn't been trying to understand this creator God, this good God of the Israelites. That's not what they were doing. Nineveh at this point was a crown jewel of the enemy Assyrian empire. It's what they kind of put on on their business card to show to other people and go, look how awesome we are. It had become this big, booming metropolis full of people and new ideas and new culture. And people love to be in Nineveh. Think about it as wherever your big city is that you love to be in. Some of you are saying it's Dublin, right? I come in out of Irvington to Dublin, right? It's where I get my culture, right? Right? 
He's saying it's, it's this big, huge, impressive city, but it was also a city that worshipped multiple different idols and multiple different gods. It was duplicitous in its heart. It is known for being heinous in many of its civil and social customs and the way that it went about interacting and engaging with people. It was a place that should have been scary to have been. It was a place that had no regard for honoring God. And yet, here's God. And what does he say to Jonah? He says, listen, I want you to go there, to that great city, that big, impressive place that everybody notices, the one that people are planning vacations to get there to. I want you to go there, and I want you to call out against it. Now, at that point, if I'm understanding Jonah's heart for the rest of the story pretty well, he's probably pretty fired up about that idea. Oh, I get to cry out against it. (laughs) I get to tell them that they stink, and I hate them, right? probably pretty fired up about that, but we can see from the rest of the story that's not God's intention is for his crying out to end there. God has a purpose for the crying out against Nineveh. God says, listen, their evil has come up before me, and we can understand from that and what we're going to hear in just a minute that God's heart is, I see how evil it is, and instead of being repulsed, I'm attracted that I might redeem them. People who were not Israelite, people who were not part of the covenant people of God. And yet God is showing his grace to say, hey, Jonah, guy who didn't ask for my attention or deserve it, go over there to that place, those people who rebel against me heinously, and go over there and cry out against them so that they can know there is a God and that they can hear the truth about me and things might change for them in their lives. Do you see this great grace of God? Hopefully this isn't new to you. I'm hoping that repetition helps us embody some things in our hearts. But God's grace is ill-deserved favor. Display in his doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. So when we talk about God's grace, we're talking about not just undeserved favor. We're not saying that I haven't earned it yet. We're saying I've done things to prove how unworthy of it I actually am. And yet God continues to give us favor, give us kindness. And it's not just in principle or in theory. We see it in display when he's doing kind things towards us over and over and over again. Things for us that we cannot possibly do for ourselves. Right? I've probably used the illustration before. I know I have in some places, but it's the difference between my six-year-old son, Freeman, saying, hey, Dad, can you get me a cookie from the pantry? I go, yeah, man, and I give it to him. Look, he didn't go to work to pay for that cookie, right? He's a great kid and he's cute, but he's not making any modeling money, okay? Right? Right? He behaves really well, but nowhere in the parent-child contract does it say that if he honors mom and dad enough, he has now earned himself a cookie, right? He hasn't earned it. He's undeserving, and yet I would give it to him, and that's cool. But, but what if six-year-old Freeman came up to dad and went, dad, can you lean down? I want to tell you something. And I leaned down and he just reared back and slapped me across the face and said, give me a cookie. First of all, if he did that, <laughs> y'all need to pray for young Freeman. Okay? <laughs> right? But what if he did that and what if I went, okay, and I reached and I gave him a cookie. After he has proven that he is ill-deserving of favor, of gift, of blessing from me. What if he's proven it and yet I go, no, no, you know what you're going to get instead of what you should get from me? You're going to get favor. (laughs) You're going to get love. You're going to get blessing. This is grace. 
And in the story of Jonah, from the very outset, what we see is a God's heart who is bursting out with grace towards Jonah to involve him in his purpose, towards Nineveh to let them hear the truth of him and have an option and the possibility of participating in God's redemptive work. We see his grace, and it's rich even in two verses. Listen, God's grace reminds us not to confuse greatness with goodness or rebellion with condemnation. Right, Because if it's ill-deserved favor, if it's something that God's just done for me, then I don't confuse the idea of greatness with that of goodness. We know, hopefully we see clearly, that a person or a thing or an organization or an institution can be great in its size. It can be great in its impact. It can be great in its fame and how well known it is. But that does not at all have any statement about whether or not it is good. When we live motivated by God's grace, we're no longer motivated to chase the never-ending rabbit of what it means to be great. We're no longer motivated by greatness. We're motivated by grace. We want to be good to honor and love and show this God. We've just talked about it for several weeks as we've talked about His holiness. Right, So when grace is our motivator, we don't confuse greatness with goodness, but we also don't confuse rebellion with condemnation. What does that mean? Think about the people of Nineveh. They are blatantly, openly rebelling against God, and there is no hiding that. We're not trying to round the edges off on that. They are not fearers of God, and they are bold about it, and it is gross. It is heinous. They are in rebellion. But listen, when we know the grace of God, we don't see rebellion and assume that that means condemnation. Condemnation just means to be unfit for use by God. When I think about condemnation, I always think about this picture somebody gave me a long time ago of an old, abandoned, broken-down house with the roof falling in and everything's decaying and falling apart, and there's a little yellow tape going around the outside of it that says, Condemned. Saying, don't go in there. Don't try to live there. Don't try to stand in there. That place is not usable anymore. You see, we're likely in our own lives and as we see the lives of others to see rebellion and assume or or live out or function as if it means condemnation. We see it in ourselves. We, We limit the grace that we can enjoy from God. Not that he's not giving it, but that we're not enjoying it when we view our own lives in this way. Remember, as a youth pastor, I made a remark one time from a stage, just making announcements, right? Just in the making announcements, I managed to make a remark that was absolutely ridiculous. I didn't even know what it meant when I said it. And then after some people told me what it meant, I literally went home to my wife. I'll never forget our first house. I knocked on the door. She opened the door. I came in, and I started bawling my eyes out. <laughs> I said, I can't believe I did this. And I remember how ashamed I was. And I remember thinking, they're not even going to let me be their youth pastor anymore. Right? This has been my dream for years. And, and I, he's, Jeremy, my pastor, he's probably going to call me in his office and fire me. Right? People were upset about this. In reality, it was two or three people who were a little disgruntled. <laughs> when I went and explained to them, hey, I should, I'm so sorry, they were super kind. A couple of them even lifting up my head later on and saying, hey, quit beating yourself up. Right? But in that moment, I thought, I have transgressed so much so that I no longer get to be used by God. I confused my moment Knowing or unknowing of of not representing God rightly, I confused rebellion 
with condemnation. Listen, hear this, friend. When you fail this week, when you see your life clearly, and it is a scene of rebellion against the God of grace, He does not return and respond to you with condemnation. That's not your God. But that's what your gut will tell you. That's what the world will tell you. That's what religion that is far from truly having true relationship with God will tell you. It will say, you have screwed up, so God has therefore moved on and given up. That is not our God. And we're not just prone to seeing ourselves that way, we're prone to seeing others that way. Prone to looking at the lives of others around us and going, well, I love them and I wish they knew God, but my effective efforts in their lives, I've kind of given up. Maybe I've never said, I give up, but if you look at my life, that's what it really says. My actions say I've given up because ultimately they rebelled so much in such a big way. Or in a way that just I just bothered me so much. That I'm just kind of marking it as, well, they rebelled and they're done. Obviously, that's the heart that we're going to see from Jonah moving forward. We've seen already just in... The first couple of verses, an unimpressive guy, ill-deserving, get the attention of God to be involved in God's purpose and send him to an ill-deserving people to receive his redemption. Unfortunately, Jonah's response to this may look a little bit like our lives sometimes. Verse 3 says, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Do you see this? That Jonah doesn't have any problem with God coming and talking to him. He has a problem with God expecting him to go and do. We often struggle not to appreciate a God who sacrifices for us, but to love a God who calls us to sacrifice for him. It's great for this God to love us. We appreciate that. It's great for this God to sacrifice for us. We appreciate that so much. I'd be willing to bet, especially in the Bible Belt South, you'd be fairly hard-pressed to find somebody who wouldn't say, yeah, if there is a God, right? If that whole story is true, yeah, I'm, thank you. I'm glad that he did that. We don't struggle to appreciate a God who would sacrifice his one and only son for us. What we often wrestle with, though, is loving a God who would call us to sacrifice for him. When he calls us away from just recognition of his affection, and he calls us into active affection that would live out life for him. (laughs) To do something for him. To leverage my life for him. Jonah has this response. And so what does he do? Pay really close attention. It mentions it a couple of times in verse 3. Don't forget the first time this leapt off the page into my heart. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. How? From the presence of the Lord. He's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. It tells us again at the end of the verse that he paid the fare, went down into the ship to go to Tarshish. Why? To go where? Away from the presence of the Lord. Two times in one verse, we're told that Jonah wasn't just trying to get away from God's mandate for him to go do something, but that in trying to escape God's mission, he was trying to escape God's presence. You need to hear this, that running from God's purpose also always means running from His presence. That when we position our lives and go, I know this is the purpose of God for my life. 
could be a million different things. It could be, hey, I know that God has called me to purity in this certain area of my life. It could be, I know that God has called me to be a committed member of a local church. And listen, that's not a plug for Dublin Bible Church. We love you. We want you here. If this is the place for you, we're not the place for everywhere. everybody, okay? We get that. But be a committed part of people seeking Jesus together. The scripture is clear about it, right? We go, hey, I know that that's something that God's calling me to, but I'm going to push back from that. I'm going to kind of run away from that a little bit. I know that the scripture is calling for me to love my wife sacrificially, to think of her first and foremost in big, huge ways about the way that I plan our lives and so that I'm making sure that I'm taking care of her, protecting her as much as possible from all different, from spiritual attack, from frustration, from exhaustion, all these things. But also means I'm thinking about her first when I have just put my backside in the chair for the first time that day. And she goes, hey, can you? That doesn't happen at our house. I'm trying to help you, okay? <laughs> We're good over at Casa Durant, Okay. What does it mean for you in your life? Where are the areas in your life where if you're honest today, if God just laid your heart out bare before you on the table in front of you today, what you see are areas in your life where you're pushing away from the purpose of God. And you're saying, I understand that God would lead me to that, but I'm just not doing that right now. I'm not doing that at all. And can I just say to you, not because I want you to carry out a heavy heart, because I hope that the heavy heart leads to a relieved experience of the grace of God. Can I just say to you and make sure it's clear to you that if you're pushing back and running against the purposes of God, you're fleeing from the presence of God. Now, the scripture makes it clear we can't flee away from him. There's no way we can get away from him, right? But the same guy who talks about that and says we can't get away from the presence of God is the same guy who writes another psalm and says, God, I desperately yearn for you. I seek you. So the guy who knows that God's presence is everywhere also says, I seek the experience of high awareness of knowing that God is near. I seek those moments where I know God is close. I want to live my life that way, knowing that he's here. And when we run away from his purpose for our lives, we're also effectively trying to run away from his presence in our lives, just like Jonah. (laughs) Didn't intend to go here, but we're going to do it. There's a football player. Of course, he played for the Tide. His name's Jalen Hurts. I heard somebody grunt. <laughs> Just say to you, dog fan, that the grace of God is good even for you. That there'll be no official altar call, most likely, but you're always welcome, and we'll pray together, okay? Jalen Hurts, this quarterback, I won't go through the whole big long story, but I'll just get you to the point where he decides that the way things are going for my position and situation in this program, as we are trying to accomplish winning games on the field, what I have decided is my position in that situation is such that I'm no longer going to be part of this effort. I'm not anymore going to show up to practices with this team. I'm not anymore going to sit in film study rooms and study film with this team. I'm no longer going to be doing the things this team is doing to try to win the games that they're trying to win. I'm not going to be part of that anymore. And it's crazy what happened when he came to that decision. This is nuts. If you hadn't heard the story, here's what happened. When he decided, I'm not going to try to win games with this team anymore, guess what they said to him? You're not going to be part of this team anymore then. Right? At the moment that you're not participating in the trying to winning the games, you no longer get to wear the jersey, have all the benefits that come your way, legal or under the table. Right? You, you, you never, you, you never, whoa, 
That's not happening at Bama. I'm talking about, anyways, all right. right? But you see this? He says, hey, I'm not functioning in this way with you anymore. I'm not straining with you in this way anymore. And it's clear and obvious and it makes sense to us. It's not a surprise that when he says, I'm not going to leverage my life towards this goal of ours anymore. It's no longer our goal. That it also means that he's pushing away from and removing himself from the presence of the team. Hear me say this. Please don't miss this. Please don't leave here with a wrong understanding because of something that's come out of my mouth. You will never escape the relentless pursuit of God. That's exactly what we're going to see in the next few weeks multiple times over and over again. You cannot escape the the loving eye of God and His care. You cannot, will not. I'm not talking about you reach some place where you push away and He abandons you. As long as we breathe air on this earth, we all live under, at very least, the common grace of a good God. But when we say, hey God, I know that's what you're leading me to, but I don't, I'm not going, we're not just being disobedient about a task. We're walking away from awareness of his nearness in our lives. Here's where we'll wrap it down today. I'll just ask you this. I just know it's true as a pastor because I talk to enough folks and and get to encourage people. People come on and talk through things individually. I know it's true that there are people sitting in this room who would go, man, if I'm being honest, if we're talking about that presence of God where I know he's near, yeah, I I I don't know that. Or I haven't known it in a long time. If we're talking about walking with God in a relationship such that his word is not put out there just so that it would land and give me some facts, but it's put out there to lead, me, that I'm supposed to respond and expressing value to him. If we're talking about that kind of interpersonal walk with God, man, I don't know about that. Listen, I don't know that this is the answer for everybody, so please don't take this as a, as a just sink it in the bucket. It's 100% this, but for some of us, it might be possible that we're struggling to know and enjoy the presence of God because we're running away from the purpose of God. See what Jonah said about him? didn't say that he went down to Joppa, jumped on a ship to get away from the purpose of God. It says twice. As he was running away from what God wanted him to do, he was trying to get away from the presence of God. What does that mean for your life today? Where do we need to be honest with ourselves and just say, hey, you know, if I'm being honest, I like the God who's good to me and loves me, but when it comes to him expecting from me, I'm I'm out. Where is it in your life? Where do you need to acknowledge that? Where do you need to not just confess, which is an acknowledgement, but to confess and then repent? And I'm saying this to you not because I want there to be some guilt-stricken heaviness that resides in your heart and, and stays there. I'm saying that to you so that the weight of awareness of who we really are would find the release of forgiveness and hope and freedom in Jesus as we go, hey, Jesus, I've gotten it wrong, but I'm putting it on the table to you, and by your grace, I'm going to walk in a different direction. There's nothing like that. There's nothing like God's ability to walk us into a new life and his forgiveness to prompt us there. The band's going to come. They're going to lead us. We get to respond in a special way today. As you see, the elements are out for us to participate in communion. not going to preach another sermon, but I feel it's negligent of a pastor to not make sure we know what it is we're doing in this moment because the scriptures seem pretty serious about it, all right? So, 
as we come and take these elements, this bread would represent the body of Jesus that was torn up for those who put their hope and faith in Him. It's not just a story. It's not a little popsicle stick paper figure where His body's got some tears on it or some red marks because He's... It was a real body. It was real pain. I, I scraped the side of my nose right here in the shower last night with the little rope on my shower loofah. And I'm a grown man and it hurt. Jesus' body was ripped apart with fragments of bone and metal and rock. Ripped. His skin exposing nerves. Parts of his body that should have been inside were now visible and outside. That's his body. The cup representing his blood. Perfect, pure, innocent blood. The Old Testament speaks often of life blood. Meaning that a thing doesn't have life if it doesn't have blood. We have new life because we're covered in the spotless blood of Jesus if we're truly his followers. What we do in this moment, there's nothing magical about it. There's nothing mystical. These elements don't become something else. There's nothing, God doesn't like us more. But it is absolutely a relational moment of worship. This is for followers of Jesus. So if you're here today, you're not a follower of Jesus. We are so glad you're here. We love you. Don't feel any awkwardness. You don't need to walk forward. You can just sit and watch a bunch of people express physically, tangibly their need for Jesus and his sacrifice. The scriptures would tell us not to take this moment lightly to evaluate our hearts before the Lord. It doesn't mean that we would be sinless because that's not going to happen. I think what he's talking about there, Paul, is is there would not be any known unrepentant sin in us, that there wouldn't be places in our lives where we would say, I see that that is a rebellion against you, God, and I have no intention of walking away from it. I'm not committed to that at all, and yet I'll come and act like I really appreciate your death for me. He says you'd be better off just to sit and wrestle with God instead of doing that. So I'm going to pray for us. These folks are going going to play and lead. Don't wait on any prompt from me. Whenever you're ready, if you need to sit for a moment and contemplate, if you've already done that, knowing we were going to have communion today or or whatever, whenever you're ready, you come forward, you get these elements, and you take them, and you remember the Jesus who's relentless in his pursuit of you. Not to beat you up, but to show you kindness. Let's pray. God. I just ask in this moment that you would give us a healthy, accurate, right mindset, God, that we would not envision something here. On one hand, that is dusty and stale, and it's just a religious act that we do. God, please rescue our thinking from that. God, and on the other hand, I ask, Let us not think that your grace hinges on whether or not we participate rightly in our right religious ordinances you've given us. Instead, Jesus, we say to you, thank you so much for everything you endured willingly, knowingly, gladly, silently, without pleading your case. Humbly, without calling down Angels that could have put a stop to the whole thing in an instant. 
so hard sometimes, Jesus, because we don't see you physically. It's so hard because we try to approach. We, we don't sense you. We don't know that you're near. Our prayers are hitting the ceiling and bouncing off. It's so hard because there's so much time between us. It's hard because there's distance between us. We don't see you right now, but somewhere, Jesus, you are alive, completely alive, more alive than we've ever been. You love us, you care for us, and we just want our souls to shout, thank you. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for your body. Thank you for your blood. Thank you for what it has accomplished for us. Perfect, unyielding acceptance from the Father because of perfect righteousness in you. We love you. We thank you. We ask that in these moments you would encourage our hearts. Call us to healthy, helpful sobriety, soberness in our thoughts of you, seriousness in our priority of you. And overwhelm us with joy of you and all you are and all you've done. This is your time. For your name, Jesus. Amen.